This podcast was originally recorded for DevChat TV. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain Our Software. This is the podcast where we invite guests on to talk about how we can sustain open source software going forward, not just the code itself, but also the maintainers and the work they do and the entire ecosystem at large. Today, we have Chris Ward. Say hi, Chris. Hey, how are you doing? So there is currently a storm over my head, and uh, it's thundering every now and then. So I do apologize for that. <laughs> I really, I can't hear it yet. Um, <laughs> if so, it adds some local flavor. It's really, you know, yeah, that's what's going on today in the world. And we have me here on the other side as one of the panelists. Unfortunately, the other panelists couldn't make it today. So this is Richard Litauer signing in from Maintainer Mountaineer. And I'm really looking forward to this podcast and this conversation because Chris and I do pretty similar things involving documentation and trying to get more people into the community and more people spending less time being totally confused about what's going on at all. This episode is sponsored by GitLab Commit. GitLab's inaugural user event brings together the GitLab community to connect, learn, and inspire. Speakers will showcase the power of DevOps in action through strategy and technology decisions, lessons learned, behind-the-scenes looks at the development lifecycle, and more. Learn how to innovate the future of software development by registering today. GitLab Commit Brooklyn, September 17th, and GitLab Commit London, October 9th. You can find it at devchat.tv slash GitLab Commit. Chris, could you uh, give us a little summary of what you do and how you got here? Sure. What I do now is I do a couple of things. I am the technical writer for the Ethereum Foundation, which... If people don't know, Ethereum is one of the the largest uh, blockchain networks, (laughs) protocols, I don't really know what they will call it. And they maintain a whole suite of tools from programming languages to clients. And I am the technical writer there, mostly working on Solidity, the programming language, but also recently on Geth, which is their Go client, and Remix, which is a web IDE. Apart from that, I also am the technical content lead at a project called Cowrie, which um, is part of a larger company called Consensus, which is also in the Ethereum space. And Cowrie is kind of a, a developer resource, a knowledge base site. And then aside from that, I run my own small business doing freelance work here and there for mostly open source projects. I tend to try and prioritize working on open source projects, but the occasional interesting proprietary one comes up too how I got there, I did computer science at, at university and was a programmer for a while back in the heady days of the early 2000s when that meant uh, developing PHP web applications. And I did my fair share of PHP coding uh, and very early JavaScript where jQuery was still cool. And then um, I guess at Code Sprints, I used to work a lot with a, a project called Drupal, uh, PHP CMS. And back yep. when we used to do Code Sprints, I would always get a bit stuck with the code contributions and started doing documentation contributions instead. And then I slowly realized this was actually a job I could do, and I was better at it. So the past four or five years, I've kind of been doing that on and off for various companies of all shapes and sizes. And uh, I'm kind of happy doing that. I could be a developer. I could probably earn more, but I actually am much happier just explaining things. And I think I'm much better at than pure coding. So That's fascinating and awesome. I had a very similar experience. I got involved with IPFS. At that point, I was a web developer. I was doing a lot of Angular stuff and Rails apps. And then IPFS came along and I tried to help out where I could, but ended up realizing, actually, the documentation needs help. Let's just work on that. And that led to where I'm at now, where I intend to write documentation more than I write code, Mm -hmm. which does actually make me a bit happier as well, mostly because I'm not in charge of shipping the next new giant feature that I don't understand. Exactly. <laughs> you don't get that many late night calls of, ah, oh, the, the, the thing's broken. Can you fix it when you do documentation? It's, it's, you know, nothing's ever that urgent. <laughs> it, it does happen. It does happen. <laughs> I tend to work with a lot of Europeans and I end up being the standard English speaker on the team who has to. Yeah, yeah, same, same. But so you're the documentation writer for the Ethereum Org, the Ethereum Foundation, which one? It's the same thing. Org and Foundation is the same thing. Uh, So as I say, I started with Solidity, which is the compiler slash programming language that people use um, on the Ethereum network. And then slowly, other teams are realizing I'm actually there and asking me to help them. The way that the foundation works, i.e. very distributed and decentralized, means that 
communication takes some time. So, <laughs> so it's taken about six months plus for people to even realize I exist. And then people occasionally say, oh, we need a technical writer. Then someone says, you know, we already have one. And then they get in touch with me. And um, yeah, and so it goes. <laughs> Luckily, there's eventual consensus, even in, in a decentralized network. Yeah, and, and blockchains are slow, you know. <laughs> so the way I understood it is that Ethereum initially launched with the founder's reward. Part of that reward, I think it was around 20%, was used to fund continuing development on the network. So they don't prioritize payments directly on the network to fund the development, but rather they set aside a certain amount of the money which everyone mines in Ethereum to go directly towards the foundation, which then helps continue the ecosystem going and gets more things. Uh, Does that sound about right, Chris? To be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure. I don't get too involved with the, let's say, the, the politics of the governance side of things almost intentionally. But I mean, that would make sense to me. It's always been the interesting kind of business model of a lot of blockchain projects in that this tokenization is, is a bit of a double-edged sword. You know, it's a way of funding a project, but it's also a speculative mechanic for a lot of people who have no real interest in the technology and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when it comes to this podcast, when we're talking about sustaining projects, it's a good way for sustaining things. But yeah, you do get that distraction from the, uh, the monetization crowd as well. So it's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic, but the foundation seems to be fine and happy and stable and investing in things. So whatever they're doing, it seems to be working for us as a foundation anyway. Awesome. Part of the reason I asked that question, and thanks for clarifying, is I was curious, how did you end up being the technical writer? Who pays you? How do you sustain yourself? How, how did that work? So there is a, a guy in the... So I'm based in Berlin, in Germany, and there's a dev office here. So they have... The foundation is mostly a, a Swiss foundation, as, as early, a lot of early crypto projects were in Zug in Switzerland. Um, but they have a Berlin-based development office. There's a hodgepodge of people working on various things. And there's a guy there who works on some of the clients. And when the maintainer of Solidity was, I think, just voiced the interest in having a technical writer, this person already knew me and said, hey, you should speak to this guy, Chris. And we did. And, and so it goes. So I am currently contract to them. That's purely because that's what I want to do. German contract law gets confusing yep. at times. <laughs> and they often want you to be an, an employee. But anyway, you don't, I don't want to go into the nitty gritty of my life too much. But um, I'm a contractor purely because I want to be, not because I have to be. They are a gambler hire and et cetera, et cetera here. Mostly I was curious, just in case anyone else wanted to get into documentation work, how do you begin? Do you start? Oh, I see. All oh, right. Okay. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yes. So the path I have followed, which is the path that I always recommend people follow because it's just the world I come from is make contributions to open source projects. Not only is that good because probably as we'll discuss later, so many of them are missing documentation or good documentation. And that helps you build a portfolio in many ways, as well as also help the project. And to be honest with you, if you have any kind of skills uh, that you've built through qualifications, through experience in other fields, that make you a, a, a quote-unquote good writer, then there's a lot of projects out there that need technical writers and not that many people out there available. So to be honest with you, if you have a modicum of a portfolio and a lot of enthusiasm, then you will probably find work, be it um, small contract work, be it bounty-type work, be it a full-time gig. It's a fairly limited field of people. So if you're up for that, and the challenges it brings. If you just kind of put a little bit of time in to get a little bit of experience in a portfolio, it's not too difficult, especially in the contract space. How I got into it, there's a lot of projects that kind of want help, but they don't necessarily have the resources for a full-time person. So, you know, you do a bit here, you do a bit there, and, and on it goes. And I mean, I've always been a a promoter of uh, putting yourself out there as well, whether it be open source or blog posts or presentations, because it helps people find you. Obviously, for other reasons, you may want to kind of, I don't know, protect your, your online presence somehow. But if you want to be found, then you do sometimes need to be a little bit public with some aspects and just make sure people can find you and what you do, I guess. Well, what's lucky about documentation writing is that you're not the person going out there necessarily asking for money, it seems. 
Um, no, I've never, I mean, if we're talking in terms of actually just like getting work, I've never really had to, to sell myself. It's always been re- very much been people coming to me. Which is that, very different for most code writers and for most people on GitHub. A lot of times people make a project and then they don't know how to get funding. Whereas what you're doing is contributing to the project itself. And generally you, you gravitate towards projects which have enough funding to give you money. Or it seems like they gravitate towards you. <laughs> they, they do gravitate towards me. I'm a little bit of a, um, a, a <laughs> I, I'm fairly happy to self-publicize myself. I, I was a musician in the past and things like that. So I have no real issues with publicizing myself, which is, you know, a skill set in itself for sure. I certainly help open source projects purely because I want to. But yeah, I mean, I'm in a lucky position. People find me. I'm findable. Uh, because I have contributions, you can find me through those contributions, you know. Unfortunately, it's it's marketing. I, I think this is a, a skill that is often under underplayed in tech circles. The ability to market yourself as well is a useful skill. Or your uh, project. Yeah, and as technical people, we're not always that good at it. And, you know, there's times I don't feel like doing it, for sure. I'm not a professional marketer who can do it all the time and turn it on and turn it off. There's times where I really cannot be bothered. <laughs> and there's times when I'm on fire with it and a lot of times in the middle. But it's a skill to learn. Yeah. And there's, there's certainly resources I can recommend for that. But yeah, I don't really have any kind of golden or silver bullet. I can say, here's how I, I am found. I just yeah, do yeah. a lot of little things and it all adds up basically. Well, one of the communities I know you're a part of is a community of documentation writers, uh, which mm-hmm. is out there called Read the Docs. Write the Docs, maybe. Write the Docs, you're right. Sorry. There's, 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 there's a connection between the two. Um, yep. I don't know if you want to start that again or if you just want me to, to kind of use that as a point to talk about it. I don't know. So. Explain the connection. I've also done work for them in the past, so I don't ah, know why okay. I messed up. But. <laughs> so, so Read the Docs is a hosted platform for the... A, a, oh, a documentation tool chain called Sphinx, which is mostly Python and restructured text-based. It's an open source free project, but also a, a commercial kind of hosted project used by a lot of documentation projects, actually especially in the Ethereum ecosystem for some reason. And then out of that, out of the founder of uh, Read the Docs, <laughs> nearly tripping myself up, yep. uh, came Write the Docs, just a community for people who write documentation. So I'm just going to feel a little bit of background and then it'll make some sense because I kind of liken it to the open source community for tech writers, but I just need to explain a step back. So technical writers in the traditional sense, so people who have worked in engineering companies, enterprise type uh, software companies like SAP and and Salesforce and and these sorts of companies. And even my grandfather, my grandfather used to be a technical artist for a company that is now part of General Electric laying phone cables. You know, people documenting technical things have existed for some time. And there's traditional organizations for them in the States. I think that's STC. In Europe, that's Techcom, based out of Germany. And these communities exist, but they're very much like enterprise-type communities, pay a membership, get exclusive access to things, et cetera, et cetera. And then Write the Docs is kind of what I would say is like the open source equivalent of that community. Anyone can come. Anyone can exchange knowledge. Um, even if you don't have technical writer on your job title or, or whatever, if, you, if you're just interested um, so it's a very open community with a handful of people who kind of are the, the, the organizers, the core organizers, shall we say, and then a lot of people doing their own thing, organizing local meetups, organizing local conferences, organizing spin-off events, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a very welcoming community. I mean, technical writers tend to be these people who want to explain things and make things accessible. So unlike a lot of other technical communities that some people may have experienced, it tends to be very welcoming and bends over backwards to to be friendly and open to as many people as possible. So you're talking a lot about explaining things and making things more relevant as one of the core goals of a mm. technical writer. Just because you've thought about this a lot, and I want to test the eloquence of your answer, no pressure. <laughs> Why is it important to have good documentation? <laughs> All right. Well, okay. This is, this is an interesting question, actually, because I mean, I could reel out, I don't have the numbers to, to hand, but I could reel out reports from 
Stack Overflow, from GitHub, from various places saying it's always kind of the top three issues that developers say is a problem that they experience on a day-to-day basis. But that doesn't really answer your question. That, that says why, why people care about it. It doesn't actually say why we should have good documentation. So I suppose the best, and I like the way you phrased the question because it is a different way of phrasing it. I suppose the best way I could answer that is if documentation is outright wrong, then that causes problems for developers building on things. Maybe they misconfigure something which can cause who knows what issue because I mean, there's a hundred, well, hundred and one, thousands and one ways, tools and, and packages and, and frameworks that developers use on a day-to-day basis. And misconfiguring those can cause everything from security issues to performance issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's one thing. The more likely is that bad documentation just makes developers waste a lot of time. Uh, and that's expensive time and time then they could be doing other things like making a good application instead. So I guess those are the best answers, I think. And yeah, the, there are numbers out there in many reports to say that developers do struggle with that all the time. So what would you say the minimum viable documentation would be for a project? <laughs> all right. Okay. Hard uh, questions here. Hard questions. No, it's just, I mean, the, the problem with anything technical is always, it depends, of course. But I suppose the minimum viable documentation would be a readme. Let's just go with absolute minimum, a readme file. There you go. So what's a readme, readme file. file? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What's in it, you know, we can go through that. So there's install, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe. This is the thing. Maybe. Who knows? It depends on the, the, the software, of course. So <laughs> it does. It does depend on the software. I tried to build a standard readme and immediately yep. got all sorts of edge cases, which didn't work at all, which was a lot of no fun, but... Kind of interesting, actually. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of software packages actually don't really need more than this is a readme, it's deprecated, go somewhere else. <laughs> That's a different use case, but for sure. <laughs> it is, but it's still software, right? I mean, at some point, all code is deprecated as soon as it's written. So the MVD is kind of a, a it's an interesting question because yeah, yeah. a lot of people today, I still work with teams that start a new repo they know what they're doing and they don't include a readme from the get-go. And I have to come in and be like, listen, I know this is totally obvious to you and everyone else, but it's not obvious to everyone else, even though I just said that. Um, yes. And actually what you say there is, is one of the things I probably spend, uh, maybe the top three things I spend the most time doing. What is obvious and assumed? Um, things that are obvious and things that are assumed are, you know, some of humanity's biggest barriers. <laughs> yeah, There are often... Uh, Documentation is one of those places where you really spend a lot of your time going back and forth to people saying, are we really sure we could assume this? Are we really <laughs> sure this is obvious? <laughs> it's quite an interesting question to ask too, because you have to be somewhat egoless to continually ask the question, hey, I don't want to be stupid here, but are, are you sure about this? Yeah, I don't know if it's egoless. In, in, well, yeah. As a documentation writer, I find you have to be willing to be dumb a lot. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and I, I often open this up with my conversations with engineers. It's like, you know, I get it, but let's just let's just be sure that everyone is going to get it. <laughs> or, or maybe just, yeah, constantly, I don't know. I don't know. I think good developers know that lots of questions need to be asked sometimes. Yeah, and, and, and appreciate that you are asking the question sometimes with the hat of, kind of the beginner on, not, not necessarily your hat. So let's assume that we're working on a, on a new project. Let's say it's a port of Solidity into Rust. This has probably already been written, but <laughs> you know, say someone wants, wants to do this project. Yep. They have a repo up. Uh, maybe there's a team of 10 people working on it. Maybe there's three who are core. Maybe there's seven contributors who are regular. And maybe there's 50 people who are sort of on the wings, hanging out, chiming in every now and then saying this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a readme. We have all the awesome community files we all need. A code of conduct, a mm-hmm. contribute file, a license file, a package.json, or whatever Rust uses as their uh, default package manager manifest. What's the next step? What's, what's the documentation after the readme? All right. So in this case, we have a specific project that has a structure that I personally know and understand. I guess the step before that would be 
um, me speaking to the, the maintainers and any community they already have to find out what are some of the biggest problems um, people experience on a regular basis. What are the issues? What are the questions they get a lot? That kind of thing. But I mean, in this case, I know what this project is, so I can be a bit more concrete. So Solidity is two things. It's a compiler and it's a programming language. And I guess one that's written in Rust would be similar. So there's actually three sets of documentation here. We have the language documentation, we have the compiler documentation, and we also have the contributor documentation. And you kind of mentioned that already, but how to, how to build you know, a, a compiler is something that often requires a little bit more on the contributor, on the contributor documentation things like dependencies, building, writing tests, all this kind of stuff. It's actually a, it's a something we have with Solidity a lot, is uh, trying to get contributors up and running as well. It's also a challenge. So obviously the language documentation and the compiler documentation are a little bit different. They probably both in a getting started guide. So this would always be my next step, a getting started guide. Okay. What are the fundamentals that someone needs to know to use this? So in this case... It's, well, okay, the, uh, let, let's think of a name here, um, Rulidity, Rust in Solidity, <laughs> requires, requires uh, some files that are a programming language code, and you, you know, there's various concepts in that uh, programming language, and then once you have that file, you need to compile it to get the bytecode that the, the, the runtime does something with. So we would introduce a few fundamental concepts of the programming language. We'd then introduce how you then run the compiler with a few kind of essential options and then what you get out at the end of it. And uh, in, in Solidity and in Ethereum's case, there's some extra next steps there that we know people will traditionally follow. But in, in Validity's case, we don't necessarily know what they're going to be right now. So let's just stop there. So that would kind of be my first port of call with as many next step kind of links as possible, you know, Here's this concept we're talking about. We're just talking about these aspects of it right now. Go here to find some more, et cetera, et cetera. So getting started are interesting because you need to get contributions from the engineers and maybe other people, depending on the, on the product of what they think is essential to know. The other interesting thing with getting started guides is actually often the biggest challenge that comes in a technical writer's job is what, what actually to tell people to do next. Mm. especially when it's a tool that can be used by anybody to do anything, this is very hard to second guess. Um, what are they making? I don't know. And this is actually one of the biggest reasons, I think, why a lot of developers will say, oh, the documentation sucks. It's because it didn't answer their specific question. But everybody has a very specific question. So how do you answer a thousand and one people's specific question? It's actually, that's a big challenge. Mm. So, and you, you build it over time. The nice thing about documentation is it's like code. It's not... It's never done. It evolves over time based on input, based on issues, based on et cetera, et cetera. So you just constantly have to keep finding out, well, it looks like people are using this to do these things. So we should make sure that maybe the examples show that because this seems to be what a lot of people are doing. Or you just use uh, consistent examples to at least show a developer that, you know, hey, I know you're not making this, but we're going to keep using this example and keep building and building upon it. So at least you can see how you can extrapolate that and learn the aspects you need to use in your use case. Um, but it, that is hard. That is actually hard. And that is often the, the place where teams fall down is that step where you've got your getting started guide, you've got all the reference documentation, but the bits in the middle are actually the hardest stuff to do quite often. Fascinating. So that's where we end up in the giant elephant graveyard of to-do apps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think you're right. It's like a lot of examples uh, use that because it shows kind of interface, it shows backend, it shows state. All yep. right, great. Now what? <laughs> How do I hook that up to my uh, 10,000 user microservices-based mega app? You know, <laughs> so, so. That's very interesting that the first step isn't necessarily... Um, say, get, read the docs up or something. The first step is actually get a guide that says how to get started and what, what concepts you need to know. Technical writers are much like programmers is we can get a bit obsessed with tooling. But yep. actually the tooling is not important. Get the content first and then actually converting the content to whatever tool you settle on is not that hard. Some tooling will offer you more features and things like that. But the content is what's most important. 
and a, a readme in, a, in any kind of Git provider will be rendered as something that most people can read. So at bare minimum, that is enough. And then what we do after that is, is not really relevant at this point. Um, let's worry about that later. It's cool to play with tools at tooling. Hey, I, I will spend hours playing with tooling <laughs> quite happily, but it's really not that important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, over the past few years, I've started adopting a Luddite approach to a lot of technology where, yes, I could build this really complicated thing, but if I want to talk to my friend, I could just call them or write an email, which solves the problem, but doesn't do it in a cool way. So I think... A lot of the development we have to do, um, or I've, I've seen happen, has been mainly because people really want to scratch an itch that they have that doesn't necessarily need to be there, but it's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, that's an unpopular viewpoint, and I apologize to everyone I just offended who are working on making the internet a better place. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. One of the things that you mentioned is, you know, it's, it's important to have just the content there. Do you do a lot of work with building, say, developer-pointed websites? Yes. I mean, the thing is, I've mostly always worked with developer tools. So even the rest of the website is fairly developer focused. So this is something to bear in mind with my background. I know there's plenty of people out there who are probably working with, especially SaaS products where, you know, the, there's a lot of the, the website that is aimed at getting business people to make a decision. There's marketing, there's SEO, all this kind of thing. And very technical developer tools obviously have some of that, but the audience is still primarily a developer and then maybe a developer's boss who signs the check. So it can make some of these assumptions. But, um, but that is actually an interesting thing in itself because marketing to developers, as we already alluded to, is a whole other conversation. Yes. Yep. Like developer blogs, developer marketing. You know, developers are very skeptical people. So building stuff that doesn't sound too kind of magic and, and wow, fab, look at this thing you can do and abstracting all the details is also, you know, as, as a technical writer on small projects, you often get pulled into some of these conversations with the marketing team too. So it's important to understand it a little bit. Do not try to fool developers because they will sniff it out very, very quickly and then not like you. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, a little bit. And and when you talk about a developer website, that is a myriad of different things. It could just be kind of what we've described. If you've got a more complicated uh, product with uh, pricing and things like that, it could also be a, a full-on developer portal, which is a whole other conversation, which I've done little bits of, but I'm not the world's biggest expert on developer portals. But um, there is okay. a whole kind yeah, of world yeah. of that as well. There is. I think it's mostly in the enterprise world as well, where they're trying mostly to get a lot because, of people. Yeah, mostly because they're the people who, who charge and then you need billing and, and API keys that monitor yeah. your usage and, and rate limiting and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's another interesting where we could have a long conversation about yeah. that. Yeah. Another question for you. So you say that you, your first job is really to go into the community and try to figure out what people are asking and mm. where, where things are going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, this becomes increasingly harder over time as you become more familiar and you know the answers to the questions that people are asking. Mm-hmm. So my question is, besides basic human empathy, what tools do you have up your trick, uh, up, up your sleeve? What tricks do you have to put on fresh eyes 
All right. Okay. Yeah, that's a very good question. You're right. Um, I don't think I'm at that point in many of the projects I'm working on at the moment because as a, as a technical writer, you, you know, you don't stick your head in the code so much or you're not, actually, that's not true. No. What I mean to say is you don't always build production no. applications with the tool. So you don't always know the, the real world problems. So yeah, that's for sure. And it takes time. There's one project I've been working with for about 18 months and I think I am finally starting to understand what people do with it, you know, in real world applications. So it does take some time. But when you do get to that point, yeah, for sure. Or even at a lower level, just checking slang, checking, um, I'm forgetting the complete jargon. That's the word. Yeah. <laughs> checking jargon, things like that. So I have, a, I have a, few, a few suggestions. One would be, if at all possible, always check things in a virtual machine or a Docker image or something like that. So one of the, the first things we said in, in, uh, in our conversation was around assumptions and things that are obvious. Yeah. If you use a vanilla Docker image all the time, there's a lot of things like technical dependencies and setups that you suddenly blast away because, um, you know, I, I could... It's a little bit difficult with something like a Mac or Windows, maybe. But uh, if you look at Linux or something, you can fire up containers with very vanilla installations and see, yeah. oh, this node module we think everybody has, do they? And that helps you start to eliminate some of those things. So, yeah, it's a little harder with other platforms, maybe, but um, uh, it's, it's semi-possible. So that's, that's one. That's a very kind of pragmatic answer. The next one is I do employ a suite of, um, well, actually not a suite, it's really just one. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one tool that I'm a big fan of, but it's not the only one in this space. So any coder is probably familiar with the concept of linting, this, uh, this uh, getting, getting best practice recommendations on your code. This doesn't mean to say yep. that you have to fix it. It's not an error. It's well, a recommendation. Hinting. Exactly. That's so, hinting. Linting is actually fixing it. Hinting is saying, well, maybe you should fix this. Okay, I, I was never aware of that. So that, that shows you. So... Um, Okay, well, linting in the way that I think the technical writer community tends to use it tends to definitely be in the um, the hinting space. Yeah. <laughs> and there are there are some tools that can help you with this, actually. Mostly in the English language, unfortunately. This is a question that I get asked a bit. It's like, are there options for other languages? And unfortunately, it's not great. But most of these tools I can recommend are open source. So, you know, I hate being the person who says, go make a pull request, because it's, it's always easier said than done. But anyway... So what you can actually do with some of these tools is either use a bunch of community-defined kind of sort of styles, uh, shall we say, or, yep. or recommended ways of speaking, or you can actually start with some of the more complex ones to define things in your community. So, for example, getting to some of the language that really isn't helpful to beginners things that I fly a flag for, and I know I, I have the potential to offend some people here, but I will justify my offense. <laughs> yep. Things like words like easy, just, etc., etc. Trivial. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Words like this seem obvious, <laughs> but actually sometimes things aren't easy. And, and it may seem like to you that it is, but if someone has just spent two hours dancing around NPM dependencies, it wasn't easy. So two hours is actually not a lot of time for some people, you know? Don't use words like that. They're not necessary. In English, they actually add nothing. Um, and there's, there's a whole other big train of conversation I could go into here, but I, I won't right now because I could probably maybe talk too long. But it's actually, in summary, it's about confidence in writing. Sometimes you use these words because as a writer, you're not very confident, and that's, that's fine. You use words that pad out your writing because you think they add to it, but actually they don't. And sometimes removing them adds more confidence. And I will suggest a resource, one of the best resources, which comes from a strange, uh, strange source at the, at the end of the show for, for people to... Yeah, go ahead and uh, suggest it now. All right, okay. So actually, one of the best justifications of why to do this, I have found, is not from a technical writing source. It's actually from a book written by Stephen King called On Writing. Ah. <laughs> he's actually not very flattering of technical writers, but he wrote this book in the late 90s when I think technical writers were a different kind of um, different body of people. Um, and it was kind of the days of Dilbert and things like that. So, you know, so it's a little different world. But obviously he's writing from a fiction perspective. And whether you like his work or not, he's very productive. 
So it's a very good book about writing in general. But he does bring up this point of things like weasel words, adverbs, passive voice, which is a whole bunch of grammar nuances in the English language that technical writers love to remove from contributions because a lot of them add up to making it sound like you're writing in your writing. You're not, you're not really sure. It's like, you know, I, I, think, I think they're telling me to install this. I think they're saying I should do this, but I'm not actually very sure. And some of this stuff is, is challenging. And I have a lot of uh, stuff I've written around how to make this easier, things to look out for, et cetera, et cetera, because this is not an English grammar podcast, so I don't want to get too bogged down. It, in it can be. I, I have two degrees <laughs> in linguistics. Yeah. Um, exactly. and ling- ling- yeah, linguistics is complex. So, <laughs> but he, he justifies this by saying it makes your writing less confident. And people read it kind of saying, well, is this the way I do it? I'm not really sure. And then as soon as you remove all this vagueness, people go, oh, all right, they're telling me to do this. All right. And sure, there will be errors, there will be problems. You know, this is the technical world. There are times when things have broken and stuff like that. But at least when people are reading it, they feel confident. They feel, they feel confident that what they're reading is what they should do. Not like, oh, I think it's what I should do. So anyway, I think coming back to my original path. So this, is all, this all sounds very complex. So there are tools out there that will help you with this. Which and tools? <laughs> so the one that I'm a huge fan of, and it's not the only one, but I'm a big fan of it for various, um, various reasons, is a tool called Vail, uh, written yep. by a very nice developer in Portland, Oregon, who is super responsive. I, I kind of try to help him as much as possible because I get this bad... How do you bad- spell Vail? V-A-L-E. V-A-L-E. Yeah. I try to help him as much as possible because I get this bad feeling that he might be about to enter, maintain a burnout mode himself. So I, I try to try to make sure that people uh, help him as much as possible because at the moment he's very, very responsive and he's not going to be able to maintain that forever. And there's a whole bunch of ways you can employ this in text editors, in CI tools, on the command line. He even has a new semi-commercial kind of option for less technical people where you can run it like a nice little um, application in the background on Windows and Mac and Linux and it can actually interface with browser text fields um, and we're also working on some some even some word plugins and things like that to try and bring yeah. that kind of uh, consistency to everybody not just the technical writers and the developers so this is one option. There are others like TextLint is another one, or you can just have a bundle of things yourself. But these will help you. And I already did say don't get bogged down in tooling, but this is helpful tooling. This is tooling that, especially for developers who want to, or somebody who wants to make their documentation better and listens to me giving all these recommendations of like, oh my God, Chris, this sounds like a lot of work. Well, there's, there's things that will help you point them out and then try to fix it. There's uh, also so, Titus's um, yes, Titus's yes. unified work, which is wonderful. He goes by Worm with three O's, yep. Yep. and then um, I've been the maintainer along with Brian Ford, who started it of Write Good for the past five yep. years. Or so Vail actually bundles Write Good rules into it as well. Oh, awesome! Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> Although surreptitiously, I also mentioned that I think that the passive voice is a wonderful construction. We should all use it more often. But that's just because I'm, I have a different view on what passive actually means. But yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, and, and acad- academics tend to prefer it more. Anyway, we'll, we'll go. We'll, we'll it leave is preferred that by academics. Um, <laughs> excellent, excellent. But yes, those are some good tools to use for writing and for figuring out how to write better English. I think those were the, we went off on a lot of tangents there, but I think the answers to your the question about God, I can't remember the question. We did go off on some tangents. Um, how do you use new eyes? How do you approach things? Yes, how do you use new eyes? So use tools that give you new eyes, basically. Mm. Uh, you could just edit the past 15 minutes and just say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I mean, I think as technical writers, you do still tend to do that quite a lot. The biggest one to steer clear of is things like jargon, I guess, is the easiest one as a writer to fall into the trap of. The other one that I would suggest to a team, not just the writer, but as a team as a whole, is internal hackathons, uh, dog fooding, if possible. Mm -hmm. I have worked at many companies where the developers had really shut down over fixing usability issues, uh, developer usability issues. And then we had an internal team hackathon, and then they were very passionate about fixing those problems. (laughs) So, yeah. 
I think that's a wonderful suggestion. Dog fooding all the things is yep. super awesome, super important. It makes the pain points that your users are having yours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is wonderful. So exactly. <laughs> all right. I'm really glad you suggested on writing by Stephen King. I've had it on my shelf for years now, and I it's a very easy read as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. I should just I should just read it. He uh, also has some wonderful advice for anyone who doesn't find writing easy to do, whether that be from a technical writing or you've got that novel in you. He has yep. some wonderful advice on just writing as well. And yep. the reason I like it is there are a lot of people who make money out of making it seem like writing a novel is hard because they want you to feel like it's hard, so you pay for their courses and their books. You know, whether you like his stuff or not, he's very productive, he's very successful, and he really gives you some very nice, just like, nah, just just do this, just do that, just just go for it. And in you, you can kind of believe he knows what he's talking about. So. <laughs> I'm imagining an, an ad for it right now, you know. <laughs> One sweet trick developed by a, a main writer. The New Yorker hates him. <laughs> but he is very successful. Um, another good book like that would be Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Okay, I don't know that one. I don't know that one. I, I'm always up for for, for reading those. Uh, to get down into the, the weeds, I have also yep. recently read uh, Eat Shoots and Leaves, which goes oh into a lot God. more. Oh, that's, I wanted to yeah. burn that book. That was my least favorite book I've ever read, ever. I'm not a big fan of her style, and I think she's, I think she's British, and I recognize a lot of her Britishisms in it. So maybe it sat better with me because I'm half British, <laughs> but still, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would love to rant with anyone about that book. <laughs> Go up, take a page, and we'll, we'll have a really good time over beer. But, but to be honest with you, she goes into details that I don't think technical writers need to worry too much about in most no. cases. But still, no. yeah. And I'm sorry, it, it's a very interesting book to, to get going with a, with a passion for language. I'm not going to. <laughs> I agree with that. And it's fun to read. I, I enjoy feeling rage. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Disagreement's okay. So just Let's fix those problems another time, Richard. Why are you okay with rage? <laughs> <laughs> because it's a natural response to injustice on the language level. Anyway, moving on. Those are some really good books to read. And that's wonderful. Is there anything we haven't covered? Oh, yeah, bounties. You mentioned bounties at the beginning. Can you explain more about how that works for you? Yeah, I mean, just funding open source, full stop, but funding documentation. So, I mean, uh, one of the uh, co-hosts often of this show is is Eric um, Eric Berry. I was about to say yep. Eric Connor. That's someone different. Eric Berry, who, amongst other things, is, is one of the people behind uh, Gitcoin and bounties. But there's other options out there. GitHub now has its own homegrown option that it's testing there's open collective, there's, there's a whole yep. bunch of, of, of things. But so bounties is, you know, it's an old fashioned word, put in the new context, say, hey, we'd like this thing resolved. Here's a, a dollar amount or a, a cryptocurrency amount or a something else amount for this. If you fix it, we'll give you that. And actually for documentation, it's, um, I would say my experiences of using specifically Gitcoin because I'm doing these in the Ethereum space. That my experience has been a common experience as a technical writer, in that it's just hard to find good writers. But my experience of the platform and doing that as a workflow has been positive. Uh, my only negative experience is mostly just because there's just a limited amount of people with that skill set. So, but also because documentation is a little bit more discreet and uh, a little less nuanced, maybe, maybe, maybe than coding. I have found that it's not a bad way of getting a lot of small things fixed. And you might have to do a little bit of post-editing, a bit of post-polishing. And this helps spread the word as well about how to write better documentation. You get a passionate developer who wants to take a bounty. You review it. You say, this is good. But how about we try it this way? How about we try it that way instead? And, you know, so then hopefully you've passed on a bit of knowledge to that, that person as well. So, you know, um, peer reviewing, reviewing people's work is always a way they, they learn new skills too. So, um, yeah, so I've had uh, generally pretty good experiences with that whole kind of model. Yeah, that's great. I hadn't, I haven't interacted with bounties a lot and it's good to know that they're also useful for documentation writing. I'm not hundred percent sure how many people are bountying documentation apart from me, but, uh, <laughs> but there might be some others out there and they should do it. They should definitely do it. There's, there's people on the platform on that platform who 
who are good enough to to help. And um, I'm sure on the more broad platforms, there's also just as many, or if if not more. So, well, this podcast is really at at the forefront of a, a new wave happening right now in terms of people realizing burnout happens, people realizing mm-hmm. that code needs to be maintained in the long term, and that putting up a GitHub project and saying everything is great isn't going to do it. So No, and actually, can I just, I'd like to add a, a point feeding off of that because I've had an experience recently where the broad thing to bear in mind, as you well know, is that managing volunteers or even temporary workers, in quote marks, is also time-consuming as well. It's work. Yes, and this is something that is interesting, I have found. So I have been asked by, by people to go out and find uh, projects that need help with documentation and will fund some bounties. And this seems, you know, hey, people, open source people, we want to give you free, we're not giving you free money, but we want to fund someone to fix things for you. And interestingly, a lot of projects are kind of like, oh yeah, maybe, or uh, I don't know, you know. And it's actually something interesting to bear in mind that managing contributions is also work. And this is something that I'm learning a lot recently and also trying to find a way to help that, that maybe me as a technical writer can say, hey, how about you let me review it for you and then you can just finish off the extra bits. You know, helping people with reviews is also work you can do as well. You don't even have to contribute a pull request. You can also review pull requests and help that maintainer as well because yeah, sometimes managing pull requests and merging things is also time-consuming. And it may seem like you're helping them and why are they taking so long? But it does, managing people takes time. It's very time consuming. Doing it now has made me far more understanding of managers I've had in the past. So offering to help with that as well can also be a good thing to do. That's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of offering to help with management. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, they may say no, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Maybe they're board managers themselves. Or excellent. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. So, Chris, it's been a great conversation. Where can people find you on the web? The best place to find the home of me is christianchilla.com. Uh, Chris, spelled C-H-R-I-S. Chinchilla is C-H-I-N-C-H-I-L-L-A. You'll find a lot of, that's kind of a lot of just me, my blogs, my other, my podcasts, uh, the events I go to, find me on social media. And then um, you'll generally find me on most things as Christian Chiller or Chris Chinch. So if you want to find me on, on GitHub, you'll also find me on Christian Chiller. And if you want to find me on chat channels, I'm generally that nickname as well. So if you find a chinchilla attached to a Chris, it's generally me. <laughs> so there are a few others out there, but it's generally me. And I'm always happy to, to talk to people. I may sometimes take some time to reply, but I'm always happy to talk to you. Fantastic. The thing that I believe most about top-notch developers is that they're constantly learning. Whether you're out watching videos, whether you're reading blog posts or books, whether you're out writing open source software, you're always out there learning how to be a better developer. And my friends at Thinkster and I teamed up and we put together a show called the DevEd Podcast. You can find it at devedpodcast.com. It's run by Joe Eames, who you might know from JavaScript Jabber, Adventures in Angular, and Views on View. And they have terrific conversations about what it means to become a better developer, to learn how to do development, and the ways that you can learn. So if you're looking for inspiration and ideas about how you can do better and learn better as a developer, then go check out the DevEd podcast. This is a part of the show now, uh, Picks, where we choose three things to share. You can share things you've already mentioned. I know you really wanted to share on writing, so you can do that if you like. Yeah, uh, I will share on writing. I will also share write the docs <laughs> yes. as a whole bunch of things, a community, a Slack channel that you can talk to, a series of conferences, a series of meetups, quite possibly in your home city, podcast, which I am helping with, mm. uh, bigger conferences. We have ones in Europe, Australia, and uh, the States, and probably other things that I'm forgetting. But and if you don't have a meetup in your area, they're very easy to host. I've hosted yeah, one. Exactly. Yep, oh. exactly. And, and a third one. Ooh, a third pick. A third pick. All right. I'm going to be, a, just because we're doing this right now, and uh, actually, no, hang on. That's a bit dumb. Hang on, give me a minute. <laughs> why, don't, why don't I do mine? You can think about yours. You do yours. I'll think of the third one. <laughs> All right. So my three picks are Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. It's a really good book on getting things done incrementally. I think it's basically how to write novels for computer scientists. Very funny book. It actually took me 12 years to read it, which is one of the great shames of my life. 
Because the whole point of the book is that if you read it, then you know how to read a book. The second pick I want to share is going to be Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art, which has also been very useful to me uh, with learning how to approach large tasks and get down to writing. So you can how this entire podcast has been mainly about talk- documentation writing. I don't think that's too irrelevant, even though it's not necessarily about code. And maybe Chris and I should really just quit the whole, whole industry and write our novels instead. Who knows? <laughs> Books don't make you a lot of living, unfortunately. Is they the don't. Truth. <laughs> fortunately, we also enjoy writing docs and code, so it's not the worst thing in the world. And then the final thing I'm going to share is going to be, I suppose, the decentralized... Um, Decentralized week, blockchain week happening in Berlin in a couple of weeks. If you're in the Ethereum ecosystem, if you're in the IPFS decentralized web ecosystem, it's going to be a very fun conference to be at and to watch from afar. The Web3 Summit is happening there. Web3 is basically a conference that happens every year where some of the main pioneers of the web come and talk about how we messed up and how we can improve things. So I would look up the Web3 Summit if you're interested in that sort of topic. And I think both Chris and I will be there if you want to come say hi. I am definitely there. If you have any interactions with the knowledge base, that's also me. So, awesome. <laughs> all right, I've thought of my third recommendation. Yep. Um, so a lot of a lot of technical interactions involve Git, uh, be that GitHub, GitLab, whatever the underlying protocol of Git. Git is especially GitHub and GitLab have made it easier to interact with that. But, um, you know, maybe you don't want to use a website, et cetera. So I used to use on my Mac uh, a piece of software, a graphical piece of software that uh, I understand Git, but I, liked, I actually kind of like using GUIs. I tend to steer away from command line as much as possible. Uh, criticize me all you like for that. I like using GUIs. I'm using a Mac. Um, it's a graphical operating system. Why not use it? I was using a previous piece of software that I stopped using for various reasons, and picked up a new piece of software called Fork. It's cross-platform. It's on uh, Mac and Windows. The Mac version is somewhat better, but maybe the Windows version will catch up. Um, And if you're getting started with Git, uh, and it's a bit of an alien world, sometimes these tools can really help you kind of just visualize what's going on. And it also has a a couple of really uh, nice features as well that I have found really invaluable for kind of, I guess, connecting all the tools that I use with Git repositories as well, like text editors and terminal and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is free. It's completely free. I think it's open source as well. So um, yeah, I've been really enjoying using that the past uh, month or so. Yeah, this looks great. I've put a link to the website in the show notes, git-force.com. So that's it today, Chris. Thank you so much for this conversation. No worries. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. You too. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.